Well, last week we began a series that turned into, uh, we began a sermon rather that turned into another series. So I'm not sure if anyone else is starting to think maybe I talk too much. Every, uh, every time we start a sermon, it continues. But uh, I actually preached this um, at Teen Challenge this past Wednesday as well. And I only got through about half of it there too. Um, but uh, the response was overwhelming in, in both cases. And, and there is no higher compliment uh, or no greater thing to hear from a pastor than, you know, the Lord really spoke to me through your sermon. And I don't know how many people last week came up to me and said, you know, I felt like the Lord was speaking directly to me. Uh, and, and that's what it's about, uh, being a pastor, is, is being a vessel, allowing the word of God to, to come through you, and, and hopefully in a way that's helpful to people. Um, but what a great blessing uh, to, to be a vessel and to hear so many people, um, you know, profoundly changed by the word of God. And that's what it is. You know, all the, all the amazing things that we see happening, lives changed, eternities changed, are because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the power of God in this community. Uh, and it's just a great blessing to be, to be a part of that. And so, um, uh, a quick recap of last week. We began the series on Pentecost Sunday, which again is the birth of the church uh, it's a remembrance of the time when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, emboldening and equipping them. And I read to you the description that I really like this description of the Holy Spirit as he who makes everything that Jesus did real in your life. Uh, I, I just like that description. Uh, I think sometimes as Reformed folks, we tend to de-emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit, and we shouldn't do that. And so we said we need to trust, we need to surrender to Jesus and trust him for our salvation. And many of us, most of us here may have done that. But we said we need to learn to submit to the spirit daily to allow God to work in and through us. So, you know, we've said before, week after week, that we need to move from trusting God just for our salvation to trusting him with our everyday lives, right? So he said, don't get so busy that uh, making a living that you forget to make a life. Or don't let the distractions of the world tempt you away from a more meaningful life. When Jesus talks about a life of abundance and a life to the full, he's talking about much more than material blessing. He's talking about relational blessing. And so don't let the enemy steal real life from you. And I mentioned uh, uh, one sentence from the letter from my father that says, thank you for helping me see the beauty in the little things. And we'd all do well to just remember that. To each day, you know, there's so many blessings and so many little things of beauty that we're so busy and so distracting that we often just don't stop and, and recognize and realize. So to slow down enough and to see how many great blessings are just all around us. And so I, I said that the reason I'm challenging you with this sermon and the reason the scriptures are challenging me is because God doesn't want us to miss out. And so we said last week the phrase was go deeper. I promised you that each week I'd give you sort of a takeaway phrase. I'd give you a, a sentence that would, would uh, sort of summarize the lesson. And I said every week what I expect you to do is, is walk away asking yourself the question, how can I apply this to my life? And so last week was go deeper. This week the phrase I want you to re realize or recognize or to summarize is remove distractions. 
That's the sentence today. Remove distractions. What are the things that we tend to allow to become idols in our lives? Remember we said last week, God intends for us to use things and love people, and we tend to love things and use people, right? And so it's about getting our priorities right. And last week, our main text, and we sort of built everything around this, was Jesus' words to the church. Uh, In Revelation 3, verses 16 through 22, and I'm going to read it again. It says, Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so we said the emphasis was in verse 19 and 20 that Jesus loves us. And so he rebukes and disciplines those he loves. And so be earnest and repent. All that means is seriously consider what he is saying and find ways that you need to change in your life so that we can be back into right relationship with him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. In other words, if anyone responds to this message, if anyone responds to to the, the rebuke, to the challenge of Jesus to change the things that we're not doing right, then we'll be back in that relationship. We'll be back in, in that fellowship. You know, that's what that denotes, this idea of, of sitting down and eating, of, of intimacy, of friendship. And that's what God wants, is, is friendship with each of us, right? And so this morning we're going to continue uh, with this, uh, what is your excuse? That's the title of the message, what is your excuse? And we're going to look at the things that tend to get in the way of, of putting spiritual things or putting God first. Let me pray for the sermon before we get started here. Well, Father, we come before you. And God, we ask that you help us. Help us to be willing, to be brave enough to do an honest assessment, to take an honest spiritual inventory, God. Not that we would feel bad or guilt or shame, but we would feel conviction to change. That the gospel is that our lives have been exchanged, that we have new lives in Christ And we're called each and every day to walk those new lives out, to walk in that victory, to become more and more like him. And so we pray that we could, again, just be honest and take a look and see those areas that you're speaking directly to each of us, because we each have different challenges and we each have different struggles, but there's not one here that doesn't have challenges and struggles. And so, Father, when we pray, have your way in and through us, God. Let that be the cry of our heart. Let that be the prayer. Because we see time and time again throughout Scripture that when people are willing to stand up and say, here I am, use me, that you do miraculous things, that that revival happens, that communities and eternities are changed. And so, Father, we are here at your service, and we say, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So he said that, that we're not supposed to feel guilt or shame because we were born in the United States or because we live in relative prosperity, but instead our response should be one of gratitude and responsibility. And Jesus is saying that we tend to show neither. If we take a look, if I take a look at myself and my life, uh, you know, am I responsible with the things I've been given, with the talents, with the treasures, with the time? Am I grateful for those things? I'd like to think so, and oftentimes I am, but very often I can become ungrateful, or I can forget, or I can expect certain things, and I can negate my responsibility toward my fellow man. And so we think we don't need anything, right? That's what that scripture is saying, that we're all set. We're secure with our own accomplishments. And what Jesus is saying is that we're wretched and poor and naked and that we're blind. We said last week that we don't even realize it. And so we talked about we all have decisions to make in this life about how we choose to live. And if we pick stuff over Jesus then our heart is wrong and that will lead to endless searching and unhappiness. We saw the example of a prideful and selfish heart in Genesis 4 and the the reality and the truth is simply this. And this isn't my opinion, not only is this taught throughout scripture, but each of us are created by God in the image of God and we can't escape our, our nature, who we're created to be. And so the reality is if we continue to try to live for self, if the focus of our life is simply gaining and pleasing and and trying to fulfill the desires deep down inside, then jealousy and pride and envy will always be present. It'll never be enough. We'll always be living in comparison to somebody else. And so again, we'll go back to the message and we read it last week. Abel was a herdsman and Cain was a farmer. Scripture says time passed and Cain brought an offering to God from the produce of his farm. Abel also brought an offering but from the firstborn animals of his herd, the choice cuts of meat. God liked Abel and his offering but Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. And so Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. And God spoke to Cain saying, why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you, but you've got to master it. We actually see a little more in in Hebrews that describes this. In Hebrews 11.4, when it says, By faith Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So what the scripture is really telling us here is Cain's offering was the effort of dead religion while Abel's offering was made in faith and a desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. You see, the the church isn't supposed to produce Pharisees. The church is supposed to produce Christ-like individuals. And too often the alternative is true. Too often when you ask people to describe a Christian, they'll describe a Pharisee. We see in Leviticus that the fat of the animal was prized as its luxury and it was to be given to God when the animal was sacrificed and the burning of fat sacrificed before God, it it caused a sweet aroma to the Lord. We read about that in Leviticus 17. So motive is everything. 
And every time we preach and teach and everything we talk about, it's always the heart of it. It's always the motive of why we do what we do, why we think what we think. And so we've said God does expect us to live differently, but he expects us to live differently as a result of a changed heart, not out of fear or out of obligation or to please somebody else or because we have to gain our way into heaven. All those things are exercises in dead religion. That's why Cain's offering wasn't acceptable to God, but it wasn't an offering made out of worship or out of a love for God. It was a reluctant offering made out of an obligation, made out of what he thought he was supposed to do, and so God rejected it. 1 John 2.15, again, as a recap, do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And again, we said that that doesn't mean we're not to enjoy the beautiful blessings in creation. God made creation beautiful. He didn't have to make it beautiful, but there's nothing more beautiful than a, than a sunrise, or than, which I haven't seen in a while, I gotta admit. I'm usually still asleep. My wife sees them all, though. Not long ago, a few months ago, I'd happened to get up early, and I saw our sunrise. I'm like, this is beautiful. And she's like, you know this happens every day, right? Like, you don't, this is like the first time in years. This is amazing. She's like, yeah, I get, to, I get one of these every morning. So anyway, but you know, ocean, all the, whatever it is, nature, relationships are beautiful, right? These are all things that God created as part of the human experience. So he doesn't intend for us to, you know, be miserable, just the alternative. He intends, if anything, Christians should be the only people experiencing true joy, right? Everybody else, they should have it wrong, and instead, it should be us that have sort of the, you know, we have the, the uh, we have joy figured out. We have the, the priority of joy in our lives. And instead, I think all too often to the world, they think that Christians don't have joy. So everything I say and do and preach and teach and everything the Bible explains and brings forth, it's always about one thing. It's always about the beauty of this Jesus who because he loves us took our sin upon himself. Gandhi once said that the act of Jesus, sinless and yet giving up himself to pay the price demanded by the sin of the people is by far the most beautiful act in all of human history. And so the reason I'm trying to get you to look at the excuses that all of us tend to make when we do not give God all that he deserves in our talent, our time, and our treasure, is that when you withhold from God, you do not gain, you lose. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's the goal. It's not, I mean, it is for my benefit in the sense that the more we all give to this community, the better the community becomes. But, but at the end of the day, you know, my, the blessing in it is to seeing People walk in the fullness of God to see people experience and to come to me and say, man, you know, you're right. You know, as I, as I do this, as I walk it out, as I see God show up just again and again and again, only through the giving up of one's life do, do we begin to understand the call to living in the upside down kingdom of Jesus, where we die to live, where we serve to be great, where we give to receive, and where we submit to be free. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. So we know that this is serious stuff 
And we know that what happens when we continue, continue down a path of envy and jealousy and anger instead of simply repenting is that verse 8 says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now maybe you're not murdering somebody. But Jesus says, if you call a man names in your heart, you're murdering him. And again, the focus is always on our inner selves, where true life lives. God loves us, and so he's, he's showing us truths that give life to help us and not to hurt us. So I want you to give and to serve and connect, because this will make us a more vibrant community, and because we can do more, but again, also primarily because I want you to experience the life God has for you. And that is why the title is, What is Your Excuse? I want all of us to stop making excuses for why we cannot give, or why we cannot serve, or why we cannot commit. And I think together we need to repent, because oftentimes the main reason is that we haven't trusted Jesus. And so last week we said that there's four reasons we don't put God first, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about those And again, we said sometimes it's the the world, you know, sometimes just the temptation of the world and the distractions of everyday life, sort of morally neutral almost. Sometimes it's the enemy and and it's true spiritual attacks against us. And other times it's our flesh. You know, sometimes we blame the enemy for things that have little to do with the enemy, but everything to do with us. And so four things, unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear, and so we shared on unbelief, and then we, we, we stopped there, and I just want to quickly just recap. We said it wasn't necessarily a lack of belief in God, but it was a lack of trust in Him. And we read Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. We said belief is mainly an appetite in the heart which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. I love that statement. Belief is mainly an appetite in the heart which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. It's not just believing a certain set of facts. It involves that. But it's actually an affection for Jesus at such a level where he is, he is your all in all. He is more than enough. And so we said to combat this lack of trust and unbelief that we can pray. And we said the most beautiful prayer among the most beautiful prayers in the Bible is the man who wanted his son healed. I believe help my unbelief. We said we can remember in the past when God came through in our lives We said we can take part in groups and be part of the sharing and encouragement that comes from testimonies. And then we said, most importantly, we read the Bible more, that we know the word of God, that we get to know who God is through the scriptures, that they point to Christ. And so that's where we left off last week. And so now we're going to look at busyness, and this is going to convict us, and it's going to make us uncomfortable. But I want you to listen, because this statement by a philosopher, I think really sums up what what I'm trying to say here and what I believe is true. And he said this, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. 
It is on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else, and we are the busiest people in the world. I want to say that again because it's very deep and it's very true. The feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. It is on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing that we ought to do, we have no time for anything else and we are the busiest people in the world. Gary and I went to visit John Martin in the hospital uh, Friday. For those of you who, who know, John Martin is, is battling cancer and they've moved him to a hospice setting and we've continued to pray for him and his family. And, and we went to, to visit with John and, and he shared with us how much he loves us and how much he appreciates this church, South Coast Community Church. And how he was grateful that he and his family found us. Now believe me, John's been around church and Christians his whole life. So to hear him express gratitude that he was part of this community is just beyond special for me to hear that. But here's what really struck me. Because it's one thing to appreciate a church for what they've given you and for what they've done for you and your family. And John and his family love the preaching and they love the community and he's expressed again that he's been fed and comforted by the words and by the prayers and by the people here. But what John said next, I believe, shows the kind of man that he is. He said this. He said, I wish we came to South Coast Community Church decades ago so that I would have had more time to serve. You see, John understood that the greatest blessing when you're part of a church family is not just in what you receive, but in being a part of the mission and being a part of the service. I've said before that either we minister to you or we minister with you. Now, these things are not mutually exclusive. And when we as a church minister to other people, especially when we do this together, we are being ministered to often in a more more profound way than we ever expected. You can see that particularly with things like mobile ministries or whenever you're dealing with the broken and with the least of these. And you go thinking that you have everything to offer and they need everything from you and you realize that just the opposite is true so many times. And so they're not mutually exclusive. But when you come here, there's a season, there's a time in everybody's life at the beginning when you come to church to be ministered to. But at some point, there needs to be a transition where you become part of the team of ministers. We said a few weeks ago that every believer is a missionary. And so we expect that at some point, you're ministering with us. We've always said, people say, do you have membership here at South Coast Church? And I say, no, we have partnership. Because the word member, what does that mean? I'm a member, I get special treatment. I'm a member. They give me a card. They give me. I get a discount. I get you know. You get a membership card, right? 
But when you're a partner, what does that mean? You're involved. You're invested. You're, you're equal. You're part of the thing. And that's what it is. It's a partnership. Jesus didn't call us to, to build organizations. He called us to be part of a movement to change the world. Amen. And that's what we're called to do. And so there's two types of busyness. And we're going to define busyness in this sense as not having time for God. And, and, and in this sense, busyness is this. This is my definition. Busyness is not having time for God because of a preoccupation with self. Because I'm not divorced from reality. I know people have to work. And I know people have to raise families. And, 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 and again, don't misunderstand me that I think ministry is just vocational. When you're raising your children up in the word of God, that's ministry. When you're loving on your neighbor, that's ministry. So life is ministry, but you have to be aware and you have to be intentional about it. God tells us we should be in fellowship with other believers. These are things from scripture. These are things that that are expected. This is not like optional stuff, right? If we want to have life, a full life, an abundant life, a life where we get to the end and we say, man, I lived with meaning and purpose and I have no regrets. I love people the best way I could love them. And that's the kind of life I want all of us to live, right? So God tells us we should be in fellowship with other believers. God tells us we should worship him. He expects it. He's worthy of it. And we should live in adoration and of, and of consciousness and awareness of all times of who God is. And everything should cause us to worship him. You know, when I look at my children, my wife, I look at, you know, when I have a conversation with somebody that was a blessing to me, I'm always aware and I'm always turning that into, thank you, Jesus, for this relationship, for this blessing, for whatever it is. To just acknowledge, you know, now we live in a world where people stop at, you know, they're they're grateful for the person or they're grateful for the ocean or for the whatever it is instead of the, the one who's given it to us, the creator of it all. Take it a step further and worship him. God expects us that we know the word of God, that we know the Bible, not that we're scholars, but that we know the word of God. You cannot defend against false teaching if you don't know what the Bible actually says. And the number one problem in the church today and the reason that there are churches growing that have little resemblance of any biblical church is that people don't know the word of God. If, if the word of God isn't the authority, then culture's the authority. And there's no sense in that because that's just man worshiping man. Fundamentally, that's what that is. If you ever go to a church and scripture isn't the ultimate authority, it's man worshiping man. There's no way to get around that. God expects that we should pray regularly. You know, if you have a friend and you never talk to that friend, what kind of relationship would you have? God loves us. He died for us. He wants to be in communication with us. And yes, sometimes that means we can ask him for stuff. We've we've talked about prayer before. We've talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, take this cup from me, but if not, your will be done. That there's two elements to prayer, that we can pray for situations to be changed, that we can pray for the healings, and that we can pray for the the blessings and all those things, but if not, y'all will be done. If God doesn't come through in the way we think he should, then we still will follow him, and we still will worship him, and we still will love him. That's true prayer. True prayer, 
True prayer isn't just God change everything around me. True prayer is God change me and let me change everything around me, right? Jesus did these things as an example to us. These things are not for South Coast Community Church or for me. They are pleasing to God and he wants us to do them because he loves us, not because he wants to burden us. These things are for our own benefit. Being in fellowship with other believers, worshiping God, reading the word, and praying regularly are nurturing, life-giving, essential things to a Christian. And they're for your benefit. And if you neglect them, and if I neglect them, we lose. You know, we don't gain the devil's convinced us that, you know, this is all, you know, it's all busy work, and it's not. It's nurturing, and it's life-giving. If you think that God understands that you need to work 80 hours a week to pay a mortgage for a house you can't really afford, or two new car payments because you don't want to drive a used car, or that you can't afford to give to charity or to church because you spend more money than you make, he doesn't understand That's not a good excuse. I ran into a friend of mine about four years ago, not a part of the church. Nice guy, very nice guy, good friend of mine, love him. And the whole time I was talking to him, all he did was complain that he had to work all the time. Oh yeah, some hours I work 100 hours a week. He had no choice. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, you, you you choose that. No, no, you don't understand. I have bills to pay. I don't have time for anything else. The guy lives in a $600,000 house He has two new motorcycles, a fancy SUV. His wife drives a sports car. Between him and his wife, conservatively, easily making above 200 grand a year. But didn't matter. Never enough. If you make 90 grand a year, but you spend 100, you're worse off than the guy who makes 35, but lives off of 20. And we've talked about this before. Everyone has seasons of busy. Right? Everyone has seasons where things come up, health issues come up, you know, a, a, a struggle in, in your job comes up, or things come up. But years and years and years of busy is just mismanagement of life. And my friend, and I love him, but he's a slave to those things. He doesn't even have time to enjoy them. If you're working 100 hours a week, how are you on your motorcycle or whatever? But somehow he believes the lies of the culture. That he, he, I mean, he really believed that he was, he had no choice. You have a lot of choices. You could, you could downsize, you could sell stuff. But the idea of less is just so foreign to us. Couldn't imagine. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Why does God say that? God doesn't lie to us. Why is he saying that? And again, it's not bad to have stuff. That's not the principle here. It's bad when we become, when the things that we own, own us, right? And when we become a slave and we expect this, this, this lifestyle, don't chase the wrong things. I beg you, chase Jesus. Everything else is a dead end. Trust me. For my whole life, I chased everything but. And if you think a million dollars is going to do it for you, you are sorely mistaken and you're grieving God. I read this, and this is, this is rough. 
I knelt to pray, but not too long. I had too much to do. I had to hurry and get to work. My bills would soon be due. So I knelt and I said a hurried prayer and I jumped up off my knees. My Christian duty was now done and my soul could rest at ease. All day long I had no time to spread a word of cheer. No time to speak of Christ to friends. They'd laugh at me, I'd fear. No time, no time, too much to do. That was my constant cry. No time to give to souls in need. And then at last, my time to die. I went before the Lord, I came, and I stood with downcast eyes. For in his hands God held a book. It was the book of life. God looked into his book and said, Your name I cannot find. I was once going to write it down, but I never found the time. Now fortunately, we have a gracious God. And it's not dependent, we know, on what we do. But if we understand what he's done, that should dramatically change the trajectory of our lives. Ephesians 5, 14 through 17. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Exodus 20, verse 4 through 7. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. We think idolatry is when we worship statues. We say, well, I don't have idols. Stop and ask yourself right now, What are the idols? And I say idols because if I'm honest, there's got to be more than one. What are the idols in your heart? Are you willing to crush those? Are you willing to recommit yourself to Jesus? He's a jealous God. The second kind of busyness is a busyness for God. You've heard me say that I worry as much, if not sometimes maybe more, I worry about plugging people into church who aren't connected at all. And then I worry probably just as much, again, about people who do too much, who are doing too many things, and who every time there's a need, they step up and say yes. Because those are the kind of people, as valuable as they are, they they burn out. And then they fade away, and then that makes the whole thing harder for all of us. I know not everybody can do everything, and I know... You, you may be at a season at your life, again, maybe you're in a rough season. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or guilty. I'm just saying take a look and see where you can lend a hand. Because if everybody did a little something, it would seem like nothing. It would seem like no work and no effort at all if everybody did a little bit. And so the second kind of busyness is a busyness for God 
without God. Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Remember we said it doesn't matter what distracts us, as long as we're distracted, that the enemy doesn't care if it's murder or if it's a deck of cards, remember, from screw tape letters? As long as we're distracted. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And we said, look, if, you, if things are aligned, if things are the right way, if, if your priorities are in order, you don't have anxiety. It doesn't mean life's perfect, but you don't live in a state of anxiety. But when things are disordered, then you do. And here's an example. Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things. That points to, it's more than just this scenario and this situation. This is a bigger principle than this woman one time in her life serving Jesus. This is much, much bigger than that. Don't see it as that. Jesus is breaking a pattern in her life. But the Lord answered her, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Not optional, not better, necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Some translations say Mary has chosen the better, which will not be taken from her. You know, you'd think that if Jesus was coming to your house and you spent all your time making sure everything was clean and you were a good hostess, I know there's got to be a whole bunch of women here that that upsets. I mean, my wife, you know, I find out that, you know, Jamie's coming over for a cup of coffee and she's got, you know, needs six weeks notice to clean the whole house and she's dusting stuff. I'm like, we're not even going to be in this room. Like, what? You know, everything's got to be nice and neat. Are you going to tell me when people are coming over? I'm having coffee with Jamie. That's not people coming over, right? So can you imagine Jesus is coming? And this woman is trying to clean everything, and she's probably expecting Jesus to go, well, Martha, you've done a good job. I mean, this is great. And instead, she gets rebuked. That's not cool. Can you imagine? Jesus is not worried about making people feel comfortable. He's worried about truth. He's worried about truth-telling that penetrates their heart because he cares about bigger things than just the, what's right in front of you, just the surface stuff. And he knew that this wasn't a pattern that was just this one time. He knew that this was manifest in her whole life. And he was trying to tell her, don't miss out. Don't become distracted by the primary thing, by the necessary thing. That's a big principle. You've heard me say before, ministry kills more ministers than the devil. He said, I said a couple weeks ago that I couldn't believe, I knew a lot of pastors burn out, but I couldn't believe that 10 years after a decade in ministry, that nine out of 10 pastors are no longer in ministry. Nine out of 10 pastors after 10 years have left the ministry. That breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. 
This comes from a lack of maturity and discipline. What distracts you? Is it a job, a relationship, money, a new car? The solution is simple. It's hard to live out, but it's simple. Because what it's caused by this, this type of busyness is a preoccupation with self. And so there's a, the solution is to get preoccupied with God. The solution is to fall deeper in love with Jesus, to spend more time with him. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. That's it. That's fundamentally what it's all about. That God wants our relationship with him to be the thing we treasure most in our lives. And, and if we're not honest with ourselves, if we don't stop and go, what are the things that I treasure more than God? We're never going to change. Martin Luther said this, I have so much to do today that I must spend at least the first three hours of my morning in prayer. Can you imagine having that perspective? Jesus was involved in a lot of activity, but he was never in a hurried state to where he wouldn't stop to meet a need or to teach when the opportunity presented itself. He would often go off to a solitary place and pray. We cannot possibly do his work if we are either too self-focused, caught up in the world, or too weary from doing ministry to where we neglect the time at his feet. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do is to step away, is to take a break. You know, I've, I've told Jamie and I've told other people on the leadership team, I've told my wife, you know, it's great to, to serve and to say yes. And sometimes we, we want to do everything. We love Jesus. But if you get to the place where you're so worried that you're not getting filled and you're not, you're not taking care of yourself, because that's what we tend to do. If you're a caregiver, you tend to care from it, for everybody else at the expense of you. And then you got nothing left to give. And that's why nine out of 10 pastors burn out. Now on the other side of that, I ask those of you who can, if you're here and you're visiting, or you're, that's not, I'm not talking to you in this instance, but if you consider this your home church, then find a place you can connect. Find a place you can serve. Because it's the right thing to do, because it's God-honoring, because it'll bless you, and because it'll help those other people who need a break. You know, it's not just because it's my wife and my mother-in-law in the nursery but do you know that they're there week after week after week watching the kids? And nine out of ten services, they don't get to be up here in the service because they're watching the children. Now, I'm not saying that so you feel guilty, but I am saying that so maybe one person can go, maybe, hey, maybe once every three months I can sit down there and watch the kids. Or whatever it is, whatever way. We're a community, we're a family. We all have a part to play. A cure for busyness is an awareness of our responsibility as Christ followers to make disciples. That we understand that this wasn't a suggestion by Jesus, it was a command. It was the, the last command he gave us. So if we think we're too busy to make disciples, we're neglecting what Jesus says is the necessary thing. 
you were created in God's image to make disciples. If you were created just to get saved, then the moment you put your trust in Jesus, he would take you to heaven. But you're still here. And once you're saved, you know what? You're not here for you anymore. You're here primarily for other people. You're here primarily to be an ambassador for Jesus. God wants all of us. He's a jealous God, not fooled by our excuses. So what is keeping you from being sold out for Jesus? If you want to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, you need to speed to speed, yeah, to feed the spirit man. To conquer unbelief and busyness, make time to spend with God. God tells us we cannot love the world and love him because God knows that everything in your life is going to compete with your affection for God. I'll say that again. Everything in your life is going to compete with your affection for God. The question is, do you allow it to win? You have two ways to live. You can put yourself first or you can put him first. The rest of that scripture I read, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 16, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The four things keeping us from putting God first are all interrelated. And the next is sin. And we're going to stop now. And we're going to continue it. Let me just give you a definition that will work for our purposes here. And I've said again and again and again that sin is a cheap substitute for something better. But here I want to say sin is this. Sin is a declaration of independence from God. That's what sin is. We think the Declaration of Independence is a good thing. It's good when you're declaring your, depend, your, your, dependence, your independence from, a, from tyranny. But as Christians, we're called to declare a dependence upon God. And sin is saying, I'm independent. It's all about me. I'm my own God. And it's pride. It is the root of all sin. Pride is the root of all sin. Wanting to be like God, wanting to play God, wanting to decide what's best. So whether it's unbelief or busyness or sin, it is all pride at the heart of it. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was all good until sin enters the picture and turns everything upside down. And so in the following weeks, we'll talk about the difference between sin of omission and sin of commission. In other words, the sin of doing what you ought not to do, and then the sin of knowing what you should do, the worship team can come up. The sin of knowing what you should do and not doing it. And sometimes we're conscious and aware of not doing the wrong things, but we also need to be conscious and aware of, are we doing the right things, right? And again, all of this, everything we say, if you're not, you know, every, every sermon, every single time, always this quote, sinning man stops praying, praying man stops sinning, Leonard Ravenhill, because it speaks right to the heart of the matter. If, you, if you're not in love with Jesus, if you haven't put your trust and your faith in him for your salvation, for your eternity, then none of this stuff is going to make sense. 
and it's just going to sound like works and stuff I'm asking you to do. Our responsibility is to respond to the love of God, to put our trust and faith in him, to say, I declare my dependence upon you, God. 